Okay, this is another edition of Musical Explorations. This is your host, Ted Peterson, and this week we're going to listen to the music of American minimalist composer Terry Riley. Okay, that is actually from a live performance of Terry Riley performing himself on an organ. He had a little reed organ that he played and did some things with. This is a piece called Persian Surgery Dervishes and is a solo uh, organ, just Terry Riley playing. You'll see a lot of Terry Riley performed a lot of solo pieces and a lot of uh, smaller form pieces, but using this idea of minimalism. Okay, Terry Riley. What is it about this guy? Why, is, why do we care about this guy? What is it about this guy that makes him tick? Uh, he's a composer, obviously, a performer. We heard him perform. He's born in 1935, same time as Lamont Young. Uh, so he's a, uh, uh, an older boy now. He's uh, 79. He was born on uh, June 24th, to be precise, in Colfax, California. Another California boy. California, uh, Colfax is a curious place because depending on where you were born or in the year, not where, but the year you were born, it could have been from Alden Grove or you could have been from Alder Grove or you could have been from Lilio's Town or you could have been from Upper Corral. The town changed its name a number of times. It's a small, small town up uh, by Placerville and the last census had the population in 1970, so it's a thriving metropolis uh, so Colfax's name came uh, from uh, a vice president, uh, Stanley Colfax, uh, but there's no indication he had anything to do with the town. We don't know. He didn't come from there. He wasn't from the area. We don't know what the association with. All in all, it just seems to be a good place to be from. I don't know that Riley would ever have uh, expanded his total uh, extent of his abilities if he had stayed in that town. So he came from a small town. Um, he's still alive composing, still working. He's in New York now. Uh, been in San Francisco. He was associated up in that area for a long time. Uh, along with Young, Lamont Young, uh, he's considered the founding, a founding father of minimalism. So let's see what this guy is all about. Uh, all the biographies of Riley, and I looked up a bunch of them, and I tried to call him, but I couldn't get him and talk to him on the phone. Uh, he's out doing stuff. Uh, there's nothing about his early years. We assume he went to high school and he went, I probably could research it and find it, but I don't know if it's that important. Uh, the first biographical information we have about him and education 
was with Robert Erickson, a composer, settled in the San Diego area. But at the time, he was teaching at uh, San Francisco State College. Now it's called University of California, San Francisco. They changed their names. Uh, but he studied with Robert Erickson. And, uh, and um, he met some uh, interesting people. He was up there from 55 through 57. So he went there a couple of years and then transferred up to Berkeley. But we don't know anything about his, his, his early years and his music lessons, anything like that. He, he didn't write anything about that in any of his biographies. I was hoping to talk to him and ask him about that. I've, I've met him before, but we never really talked about much. He was a, a, a lot of people were around him, and we just had a very brief uh, talk and, uh, about some things, and then, and then off he had to go. But he was accepted into the music school, and... Um, to be accepted into that school, you had to have some legs. I mean, you just couldn't be a bum off the street. You had to be able to play something. Uh, so he hang around there, and he studied with Robert Erickson, as I said. And he went, uh, and Erickson was a very thoughtful composer. He would not have undertaken to teach this guy or, or, or spend any time with him if he wasn't serious and, and had some decent chops. He would have, uh, Robert would have, would have said, uh, no, no, don't bother me. 1960, he transfers to Berkeley. And he meets Lamont Young. Lamont Young has been around there. Uh, uh, Young's ideas, uh, even at that time, I mean, you heard the Young program. He, he liked to use minimal elements. His definition of minimalism was use the fewest elements to the maximum of their, of their capability. So Riley loved that. He heard it. He had a background in jazz, uh, and he knew about jazz harmonic practice. And uh, it's different from Western musical practice, but... Um, we know as, as the common practice period is what we call it. Most of the harmonies today, even folk music and pop music and still film scores and, and a lot of what we call utilitarian music uh, is still all based on, on the ideas of that common practice period. And that's the idea of tonic and dominant. And I'll give some examples of that. And the idea of a cadence, uh, that things progress to a cadence. What has happened in Western music is that the idea has moved away from progressions, which was very popular in Bach and Mozart's time, where you try to resolve things. All the little phrases were resolved. They were very short. To things like Scriabin and, and, and Rachmaninoff and other people that are now putting in between those progressions, the cadences, they put what they call successions. And successions are long forms of harmony, sometimes just one four, one four, one four, one four, or one five, one five, and I'll explain what that is, without a resolution, without a cadence. So what am I talking about here? One five successions, those type of things. Let's take a look at it. It'll help you understand what minimalism is and, and what minimalism is doing. And it's going to help you understand all your music when you listen to it. Okay. We're going to go over this quickly, so it'll, it'll give you an idea of what's going on here. There are harmonic movements in chords. We can have chords that move all around. Uh, look, we're, we're in C here. Okay, that's a progression. There's a repose there at the end there, all right? That's just in C. I can do it in any key, but I'm, I'm using C. It's a simple key to work with and one to give you some understanding. That connection of the dominant, what they call the, the, the five, or the dominant in the chord, the G in C, 
when I move up to C, it's a sense of repose. That's a sense of end. Progressions are things that move to a cadence. That's called a cadence, five to one, all right? And that's a sense of repose. If you listen to folk music, a lot of folk music, sometimes it'll just go be back between... Endless like that. Or it'll go to a four. It'll have one, four, five, one. That's like common blues stuff. Okay, so those are progressions. Successions are chords that don't repose. They're they're chords like a an A in C would be a would be a succession. If I go between an A and a G. could go on that for endlessly I could play that and it would be a succession a lot of pop music is just or it's just um, just simple chords like that successions and what has happened in western music is from Bach and Mozart a lot of progressions dominated the music. So no matter what key you were in, if they wanted to have new progressions, they would modulate. And modulating means establishing a new key. So if I wanted to modulate in C, I would do C and establish the key by a dominant relationship. One, five, one. Okay, that would dominate, that would establish my key of C. If I wanted to modulate, I would do something like, hit an A, and then go up to uh, D major, and then to a G. Now I'm in a new key. And as long as I have that relationship, that dominant to tonic relationship, what they call, that's a new key. That's what dominated Western music. Around the time of the late Romantics, let's say after Beethoven, Schubert, Schumann it started some, and, and Schubert even, successions started getting longer and longer and longer. And successions are the chords that are in between the cadences. The one, let's say I start one here, and then five to one, that's a progression, that's a cadence. Things like this. from A to D to G to A, just over and over and over again. That's called a succession, okay? In Western music, successions got longer and longer and longer. And you could have a succession of just tonic, tonic, and the fourth in the scale, which would be called the subdominant. And you could just do this all day long, and this is your piece. Uh, you can do the same thing with A and C. And if you listen to pop music, you hear a lot of that. But... That's just the C, one down, one whole step to a B flat, back to a C. Just a succession. There's no cadence in there. 
Minimalism does that same thing. Minimalism doesn't use cadences. They use what they call common tone modulations. In minimalism, and a lot of the things you're going to hear from Terry Riley, you'll hear this. What basically is happening there is I'm going from C, C here, to one note different is an A, so these two notes stay the same. I'm staying, just most of my notes are common. Then I just move my E up to an F, and then I move my C here up to a D. Now I'm in D, D minor. And you'll hear minimalism, which is sometimes two against three, and it's just simply one chord moving one note. Chords connected, but only one note changes. So you'll hear. That's the basics of minimalism, and that's the basics of succession. It's just one note, two chords moving, a C to an A, back to a C, back to an A. There's no cadence. And when you cadence, when you change, you can change even to a whole new key range by just moving one note at a time, as I did before. C, I move one note, then I move another one note, and then I move, finally, the root, the C, which I'm in an F now, right here, I move it up to a D. Now D, I could actually make a cadence if I go to an A major, a dominant, right? Remember, Western music? I'm in D minor. I've modulated from C to D minor, one note away, but I've done it through what they call common tone modulations. So if I start in C, G, there's my dominant. I've established key, C as a, as, a, as a key center, and I want to change now. Common tone modulations. I move to a A, to an F, to a D minor, and then to a A major, which is the dominant in D minor, and then back to D minor, and I've established the new key. It's that simple. Common tone modulations are part and parcel to what's going on when you listen to minimalism. You'll hear chords change and harmonic structure change slowly, just one note at a time, over a long span until a new key is established. And that's not modulations that were done in Western music before that. This is a whole new way of looking at it. So when we listen to Terry Riley and you listen to Stephen Reich, we're going to listen to him later, you listen to other people, remember, common tone modulations... So chord successions, there's no repose, there's no dominant to tonic solid relationship and, and supporting harmonies for that. And there are, as I said, common tone modulations and, no, and a lot of succession. 
In other words, chords stretch out without any appreciable cadence. Now, language has changed in this music over time, and, and these things have come to actually be cadences. It just sounds like this. Cadences. It's a cadence because it's, it goes on for so long, you, you, your ear starts hearing it as a, a repose. You expect it to go back to where it came from, this two chords moving. Now, it doesn't matter how you play those chords. So I'm going to play the chords, C, E, G, C. And against that, I'm going to play E, G, C in three. So it's going to be a four against a three, and you'll hear what it sounds like. can change over time. It changes with a phase. All right. Riley used that idea, that repetition. This is what Riley added to minimalism. Lamont added these long chords. Remember Lamont Young was, was this idea, four notes, right? C, E, G sharp, and let's say this one, and he would just have these long notes. It would be like... Uh, Okay, Riley would take those same four notes, all right, C, E, F sharp, and G, and he would do this to it. He would start repeating over and over and over and over again. That's his contribution to minimalism. So in a sense, he is one of the founders of minimalism. He came up with the idea of using Young's extended harmonies and then repeating them ad infinitum. Early 1960s, uh, Riley is studying. You know, he's, he's met Young. He's doing his repetitious things. He's uh, doing his things. And he comes up with the work that is considered the first real work that musically, rather than conceptually, came to define minimalism. For all of Cage's theorizing about indeterminacy, and after alternative means and all these different ways of making music and Young's ideas about using just a few notes and a few chords and changing them slowly. What Terry Riley came up with is this.
Okay, this is an excerpt from NC, and this is a seminal musical work in the history of music. This is the first time that this type of repetition and this type of thematic elements have been used. What Riley did was he took 53 separate melodic elements and he put them on a page. And each can be played as many times as you wish, and then it changes, and you play another one. This can, can go any length, but usually the composer and the, and the composer, the people that play it, arrange to have it done any number of times. And the only thing that's consistent throughout the entire piece is the C. That's the only consistent thing throughout the entire piece is that note C played from beginning of the piece to the end. Now, sometimes people record it. They put it on a, a tape loop. Sometimes people play it. One of the instrumentals can play it. They can get a person that's even a non-musician to play it and just beat that C as long as they can keep a constant rhythm. Um, sometimes it's a, just a metronome. Click, 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 click. It's not even a, a note. But somebody will play the C, but it'll be uh, just a note. Now, we're going to jump all the way towards the end so you can hear where the beginning of this piece went and where it's going to. This is interesting in many ways. One, it's, it uses this idea of a phase, things going together and out of sync. And the way he wrote the melodies, they would match up and, and, and come apart against each other. Now, Phil Glass and Stephen Reich, two other composers, took this idea and, and started phasing. In other words, they played the same melody against itself. But we'll talk about that and then went out, in and out of phase. But we'll talk about that when I do the music of, of those guys. So there's a, one piece of paper. 53 melodic elements, they're all repeated uh, uh, any number of times that you can decide. Usually the performers decide what they want to do. And um, Riley worked out, uh, what's interesting about this is not just the fact of indeterminacy, which it is. I mean, you can put any element against any other element, but Riley actually worked it out and played all the different elements against themselves so that it wouldn't sound like all of a sudden you're playing along like this. And then you start doing something like... Um, in other words, something that's non-related, something that's just totally ridiculous, right? So I mean, it, it could all potentially work together if you prepped it up and did it that way. To fit in with minimalism, you could. If you have a drone, you can pretty much do anything you want above it. However, it wouldn't have fit the concept that Riley had of this piece of introducing these elements and then having them be extensions of the melodic element before that and adding something different. So, how, how fast you play this piece? Well, it depends on how proficient the performers are. You could play it as fast or as slow that you want. So, um, when he played this, the first few times he played it, it really had people upset. There were people walked out of the theater People, uh, some people got into it. Uh, and so the, the more cognizant 
crowds and the people that of places he played kind of understood that idea because remember they'd been with Lamont Young they'd heard all that stuff and been through this drone type of music but when he took it to New York he took it to other places he had problems and um, he traveled quite extensively so NC was written in, the, in uh, 1964 okay and he was performing it and took it around and performed it then remember these were the years he was at Berkeley and somewhere between 62 and 64 Boom, off he goes to Europe. Why? Stockhausen was teaching. Utrecht was the home of electronic music. They had a big electronic music studio. The Polish school, Krzysztof Penderecki, Wilto Ludoslawski, they were coming out writing uh, the Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima had been written. Other things of Ludoslawski, Venetian dances were, were written. Um, uh, that was coming out. That was that own special brand of micro, kind of microtonality and this whole thing was going on. Luigi Nono, Bruno Moderna, Luigi Dalla Piccola, Luciano Berrio. They were down in Italy doing the Spolito Festival and they were drinking this Italian sound. Other Europe was coming back. It had been through World War II. It had been like 20 years now. They were starting to get their feet under them again and they were really hitting the music scene and making a gigantic noise over there. That was the place to go. Film music was big in Europe. It was just gigantic. What do we have uh, working down there? We had good film composers working here. A lot of them were, were ex-European composers. But they had, who do we have? We have the Spaghetti Western, Nino Rota and uh, Ennio Morricone. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da. Who doesn't know that from the good, the bad, the ugly? I mean, it, it was just everything was kind of happening in the 60s classically in Europe at that time and in the United States, but not in New York because it was all coming out of California. This is what's interesting. Okay, so there's a lot going on. Social democracies and why it had happened in Europe. Social democracies had actually paid composers. They had, you know, everybody got money. A guy could be a composer or a girl and make some money. You know, uh, women composers were, were actually coming to the forefront in those days. And they were, you could actually get paid as a composer and you could write music and you'd get paid, sit at home and write music. Now, a lot of them produced nothing. Some of them did it in name only, but some really produced some good stuff. And, um, and they were producing some new ideas and it was very attractive. And, and Riley was attracted to it. He wanted to see what was going on. He wanted to see electronic music. He wanted to see all these other things. Oh, NC was almost an overnight success. It, it, it launched O'Reilly, uh, Riley, O'Reilly, <laughs> now he's on Fox News. Uh, it launched Riley uh, uh, into an international spotlight virtually overnight. I mean, he was, uh, Young had, had, was kind of an enfant but this piece of Riley's, NC, just absolutely took the world by storm. The guy was very clever. He gave the score away. He put it up anywhere, anybody who wanted it. Remember, there's no internet. There's no, any of that stuff wasn't, wasn't there. But he would give people copies. It was only one page. He'd say, pass it around. Everybody perform it as much as you can. He just gave that piece away. And other composers have tried that too, giving stuff away and hoping to get attention, garner attention to their music. But he did it. You know, he was the first. So he's got NC. He's written this piece. He's not only become this innovator, he's becoming the butt of musical jokes. He's now a charlatan. Oh, this isn't music. I went to concerts with composers, profound 
composers, really good composers in, in the United States. And they said, this is a bunch of baloney. This guy never going anywhere. This is terrible stuff. I studied with Aurelio de la Vega. He thought it was a joke. And Aurelio is not a, 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 a penny Andy composer by any means. He's, he's a man of international fame. I talked with other people who thought this was all a complete joke. Uh, uh, even Nicholas Slanimsky said, oh, well, we have these primitive things. They come and they go, and, you know, it's uh, from time to time in history. And, you know, there's another one. And other people, uh, uh, incredible luminaries, were not, didn't think this stuff was serious at all. Well, that's serious. They are here. So what does he do next? Yeah, yeah, he's got repetition going. He's got this piece of all these things. What, what's he going to do? You know, we had people that do this kind of melodic development before. Berlioz was one in the Symphony Fantastique who would start a little melody. You'd hear one note and then you'd hear two notes and pretty soon it would develop into a whole new melody in the piece. So we had, that was a common uh, use of music. Wagner had used repeating themes coming out into, into different parts of music to show uh, characters and those type of things. We'd had use of melodic materials similar to this before, but the repetition idea was one thing that nobody had done before, not like this. We'd had sequences where people would, well, sequences basically a, a pattern that you just repeat over and over again and then change it. Bach used them and he said, no, two is enough. Most people thought two was enough of that, but this, these people now said two, two is barely, what's our appetite? We want hundreds of them, you know, we want thousands of repetitions. Okay, as all things, social systems come to an end and, and the social systems in Europe fell apart. Uh, it happens, socialism doesn't work. Unfortunately, it works on small little things and I've been in tribes uh, uh, and, and lived in them um, in both Asia and Africa and even in South America. And as the tribe stays small, maybe, you know, under, under 100 people, socialism does kind of work. But you start getting up among about 200 people and there seems to be a psychological break somewhere and people start breaking into clans. As soon as you get a clan, you've got a hierarchy and, it, and things start falling apart. Those systems fall apart very fast. So we had a bunch of people working under the social system and it fell apart. What are they going to do? Riley is uh, uh, writing his stuff. It could be like Pierre Boulez. Boulez was, became this musical tyrant uh, in, in France. He founded the, uh, worked for the Pompidou Institute and he, he founded ERCOM, uh, uh, which is uh, basically says it's the Institute for Research and uh, Coordination for Acoustic and Music. Uh, but in a sense, forming those schools and running things at strictly kind of stopped music from happening. Boulez was absolutely anti-minimalist. He thought Cage and those ideas that Cage was doing was a dead end. He thought you couldn't take that stuff anywhere else. Of course, Boulez thought the only things that Boulez did were great, So, uh, which is what my argument with him was about. So uh, with him at Betty's, we, we had a quite a profound disagreement. But uh, he was Pierre Boulez, and you know who argues with Pierre Boulez? 
But Europe was more receptive to new ideas. Minimalism actually took off in Europe before it ever took off here. We had composers writing minimal things in, in Yugoslavia, the old Yugoslavia when that was still in, in existence. We had uh, Soviet composers writing minimalism. We had German composers writing minimalism. It became accepted there much sooner than it became accepted here. We, we went all the way up almost uh, uh, 10 years after Europe. It's a funny thing how that happens. Okay, we've heard NC. Let's take a listen to something else that he was doing at that time. This is from a thing called Reed Streams. What Riley had done is he'd gotten a reed organ. Now, I don't know if he got this idea from Harry Parch or not, but it was the same kind of thing. And he started traveling around playing these concerts that featured tons of minimalism. So let's listen to something from Read Dreams and listen to what he was doing. And I'll explain how he did it. listen to the piece long enough, this is called Read Dreams, if we listen to the piece long enough, we'll hear him go in and out of phase with the, with the little pieces. He uses just a very small, very small group like that. But I'm going to slow it down and show you how he would do that. So I'm going to rake a B major in my left hand, just these four notes. This is just B major. Here we go. And over that, I'm going to play just some A flats. Just like that. My left hand's playing four, my right hand's playing two. Now if I add another note in there, if I add a D flat, so I'm playing an A, D, and a another A flat, and then I'm playing B, D, F, B, and I play all that together, I have this. Now, if I do what Terry Riley is doing or, or and other minimalists, I will go out of phase. In other words, instead of playing all the notes simultaneously, even though it's three to four and it's constantly changing, I'm gonna go out of phase and here's what it sounds like. Back into phase. Out of phase. Back into phase. That is what is happening with most of the minimalism that you will hear. Now, what Riley did with this Reg organ was he, he detuned it. And not only did he detune it, he got a vacuum cleaner and he stuck the vacuum cleaner inside the thing and then on the inside of the organ, when he had the keys, that, that when he would depress a key, it would open up a little valve on the reed organ, and he's pumping away on this thing. He put little things that would rattle. So we had the sound that you heard in that piece, was the rattling, the phase going in and out of his playing that I showed you, plus the phase by this vacuum cleaner going on and off and on and off at certain times would bend the notes even further. 
That's what he was doing, and he went all over and performed with that all over the place. And and uh, sometimes he'd do pieces for 24 hours. He did sometimes do it for eight, and uh, and he would record his pieces sometimes on tape. So he'd he'd record like four hours of it, then turn the tape on, and then he'd go off, rewind the tape, and then he'd go off and go to the bathroom or get food or do whatever he wanted to do, and the tape would play, and he'd come back and he'd play with the tape. And sometimes he'd turn the tape off, and he'd, he'd had a variable tape recorder. He'd turn it down. But he had all kinds of tricks that he would do in these performances, and he kept on going. And he had audiences would come in and sleep in the places, and he'd bring their kids and run. Uh, it was uh, it was really interesting. Okay, he uh, he became a member of Lamont Young's uh, Theater of Eternal Music, and by the 70s, uh, he kind of made a, a pact and had met Pandit Ponroth. Uh, and played with him. And I had before, remember, I played on the Lamont Young thing. So I'm going to play that little excerpt again. This is Pandit Pranath, uh, Marion Zazila, uh, Lamont Young, and Terry Riley. It's a brief excerpt of a piece of Indian music. Riley performed for 26 years with this guy, and he did actually travel to India with him and did concerts and traveled to other places and did concerts. So he's now in Mills College, 1970s, and he founded. Uh, he met. He meets the founder of the Kronos String Quartet, and they became immediate buddies. And Riley wrote over 13 pieces for the quartet, uh, including some of his later works. So let's hear an excerpt from one of those quartets. Okay, that's one of the pieces. This is called Salome Dances for Peace. And it's uh, actually a, a bunch of pieces. It's not just one. This is an excerpt from the first piece called The Summons. Now I'm going to play a little excerpt from, let's go to the end. This is the last piece, and it's, uh, it's called, it is called Good Medicine Dance.
Okay, this is minimalism uh, taken to a new level. I mean, Riley has really evolved. You can hear from his early works, they're more repetitious, a lot of phasing. This one, he's really developing some real melody, melodic themes. He's developing them. He's uh, using a whole different harmonic set, which, which is very different. He's not just doing common tone modulations, and he's doing other things. As a matter of fact, he thought this work, uh, this uh, Salome Dances for Peace, was his most... Uh, expressive and and his best work. Around about um, uh, the Salzburg 1990, the Salzburg Festival commissioned a piece. Uh, now the Salzburg Festival is a bastion of musical conservatism. There is they never commission contemporary works. 1990 they commissioned one from Terry Riley. Unfortunately, we don't have any recording of it. I did have a recording and a friend of mine borrowed it and it. Uh, decided it was going to go the way of whatever, but uh, it's called The Sands. I've got to get it back somehow. Uh, in 2003, NASA commissioned uh, a work that Riley titled Sun Ring. So let's hear a little bit of what that sounds like. Thank you. 
It's an excerpt from Sun Rings. And it's for, it was from NASA Commission 2003 for string quartet, chorus, and pre-recorded soundscape. So he had all these things going on in the piece. And, uh, and, and written, of course, for the Kronos. Uh, he's had diverse commissions. This guy's got tons of commissions now. People really like the type of stuff he's doing and the type of things he's putting together. The new movement in this move in this in minimalism has been really to incorporate video into the music. So in reality, it's what you're what you are only hearing is the part of the piece. There's a whole video that goes with this that he developed in a way he took got films from NASA and some other films and he got the video to work in with the music and the string quartet and the sound design in the background so that it all fits kind of like a musical piece it's it's got repetition and it's got uh, mu uh, minimal elements in the visual aspect of it so you're only actually hearing it's radio of course we can only hear one part now, uh, Riley also wrote for guitar, interestingly enough. You know, guitar in our age is like the piano was in the 1800s and 1900s. Everybody played the piano. The guitar was a salon instrument. It wasn't very popular, uh, really, except in, uh, for women mostly. But there were some guys, uh, folk music, a lot of guitar. The guitar wasn't as we know it now. In 1990, he wrote 24 pieces for guitar, solo guitar, uh, and then the guitar with various ensembles. He wrote all this stuff. And he published them under this collective name. It's called The Book of Abby Ozzed, A-B-B-E-Y-O-Z-Z-U-D. So let's hear what some of that sounds like. As you can see, Terry Riley is quite an extensive composer. This is really quite a lot different than the basic minimalism that uh, we've heard from him. This is not just phasing. This is really extended musical development and is, is quite good. This is David Tannenbaum and Gran Riley on guitars. And uh, this comes with other pieces, too. That William Winnett played percussion on this album, but it's called, again, The Book of... 
Abba's, uh, boy, it's hard to pronounce. It's Abby Ozzed, A-B-B-E-Y-O-Z-Z-U-D. Pick it up. Uh, you'll have some great music on here. Let's hear another little piece from this. This is interesting. So that's, again, David Tannenbaum on guitar and Tracy Silverman on violin. This is from this thing called the Book of Abby Ozzed, um, Terry Riley. You can get it on CD and go out and get it. Like I said, William Winnant's percussion on this thing, but I didn't play any of the percussion pieces. Um, it's, a, it's got a bunch of different interesting titles. It's a song, Desert Songs, and then a piece called Zamora, which we heard. That's the two guitar ones. Uh, it's got some solo guitar things called Barabbas, and then there's a piece called Ascension. Uh, but it's, a, it's worth listening to. It's good music. Now, this is not just your average minimalism. This guy has taken this whole minimalist aesthetic, and he's turning it on its ear again. He's evolving. He's taking those early repetition things, and now he's really moved into full melodic and harmonic development, just like... Uh, um, a new kind of harmony, a new kind of use of uh, our common practice system. I showed you that at the beginning, uh, the ideas of progressions and successions. And he's kind of turned all that over back where he's now writing towards progressions again. And it's very interesting. He's also done some extended works. He's done these big long works. He still has been doing that. He's been doing, did a long work called The Dream. We don't have that, as I said. But where John Cage and Lou Harrison and Harry Parks wrote extensively about their processes. Riley doesn't, doesn't do so, so much. He writes a little bit. He gives some interviews. He talks about his stuff. He does a lot of performing. He is more of a realizer of his music. He performs quite a lot. Uh, probably in the scope of things, it doesn't much matter what a composer writes, really, other than the music. I mean, whether it's about music, right? It's nice that we have composers that do write about their processes. Wagner wrote extensively about his processes. Other composers have done it. In fact, some of them got so into the writing of it that their writings are better than their music. So, I mean, that's not un, un, uh, uncommon. 
But we, we listen to music. Music can't lie. It, it, music is either good, you hear it, and it works, or it doesn't work, and it's not good. Even things you don't understand. doesn't mean they're bad. It just means you don't understand them. But once you figure out what's going on, you can discern whether it's good or not. You can tell when performers are sincere and dedicated to what they're performing. There's a remarkable consistency in Riley, and, but he, you can see this consistency, use of melodic germs, and he, how he's developed has really grown over the years. It's great. He's not like Parks. It's not like the same things at the end of his career in the beginning. It's not like Lou Harrison, which is pretty similar from beginning to end, or, or uh, other people, even Lamont Young. He really has made some transitions, and this is really exciting. You could go to a concert and hear NC, which is an early work, and then go and hear a later work, and you'll hear two completely, you'll hear this whole evolution of where this guy started to end. Other things of his performing, he does these things too. So this is very interesting. As I said, he's still composing, still staging his works. He's, he's somewhat older now, but he still manages to hobble around, I guess. Uh, in 2010, he issued uh, reissued some early works. He's like other composers, he reissues early works. I'm not going to uh, belabor you with those. They're okay. They're not that interesting. They're, they're interesting in the sense, but we've heard what he's doing and the stuff he's doing later years, this uh, Abba Ozid and uh, other things he's doing are much more interesting. During his career, Terry, Terry Riley formed art rock groups and he's got one. I can, I'll play some of that before we go out. And uh, he composed for short films. He's composed for movies. He's had his film, his music used in movies. He's written incidental music for stage. His experiments are less of an abstract, in a sense. They're, they're really not. They, they're more real. Uh, like Hayden, he's a masterful, realized composer. I mean, he's a, this guy's a master. There's no doubt about it. He's got his craft down, and he knows what he's doing and where he's going. And it's interesting, exciting stuff. Um, and it's kind of a combination, somehow, of jazz Indian music, popular music, and the concept of indeterminacy along with uh, minimal resources and then developed into really Western music's idea of musical development. Repetition plays a keynote in Riley's music, but it's not the whole beginning and end of it. People that know Terry Riley have listened to NC, that's it. They don't know anything else that he's done. But he has actually given us a completely new way of looking at playing and appreciating music. He has done a fantastic thing. His, his later stuff, like I said, is by far much more musically interesting than a lot of his early stuff, and it was conceptually interesting. So he's had a wonderful career. So let's hear something from his rock band. It's called Poppy No Good and the Phantom Band. Obviously, a political statement. You're no good. Somebody said, you're no good. And he said, yeah, well, I'll show you. 
Uh, I want to play one other excerpt here. We're getting down. We've got about three minutes left. But I want to play something. Uh, it's called Diamond Fiddle Language. And this is where Riley really starts experimenting with microtonal uh, sounds. So uh, listen to this. Fantastic, interesting stuff. We've listened to Terry Riley and heard some of his music and look, watched him evolve. This is a, a major American composer, still living. Go out and buy his CDs uh, and download them if you can uh, find them. You know, buy them and download them. Get his music into your collection. He's got tons of albums. There's about 35, 40 albums that he's made. He is an American icon and a very important composer. So this is Ted Peterson. This has been Musical Explorations, Terry Riley. Next week I'm going to do, I don't know, I want to surprise you with somebody. Uh, it will be unusual though.